Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6. This whole chapter is about feeding and food and bread. And uh, in a sense, I'm having divided into three parts because we wouldn't have time to cover it all in one week. But uh, this is the chapter where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with two fish and five black loaves of bread. And they multiply in his hands as he prays. And uh, after he does that and feeds all these people, and there's probably 20,000, it's only 5,000 men mentioned, but we know there had to be women and children there. Uh, the crowd seeks to make him uh, their king. Now, in order to understand this, you need to realize this is a subversive act. Uh, Rome rules the world, and Caesar's the dictator of the world. And Herod Antipas is his client king who rules over Israel on behalf of the Roman Empire. And so when the crowd tries to make Jesus their king, what they are basically saying is, let's revolt against Rome and seek our independence and we'll set up our own king and our own kingdom. And Jesus will have nothing to do with this because although he is the king of the Jews, his way of bringing in the kingdom is not through violence. And so what Jesus does is he withdraws to a mountain and gets off by himself. And that's where we left off last week in chapter 6 and verse 15. So today we're going to go through, begin in verse 16, and we're going to go down to verse 36. Okay? And I'm going to divide this section into two parts. Part number one, I'm going to call it day one. Events that occur on this first day. And then part number two, events that occur on the second day. So we're going to go from 16 to 21. That'll be day one. And then 22 to 36 will be day two. So let's look at day one. Now, this is John chapter 6 and verse 16. Now when the evening came, this is after he had fed the apostles, I mean fed the 5,000, his disciples came down to the sea, that would be the Sea of Galilee, and got into, a, into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Now Jesus is still in the mountain. We know from other gospel writers like Luke and Mark that he's actually told them to go down and get into a boat and he would meet them on the seashore, and they would go from Bethsaida, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and they would travel northwest up to Capernaum, which was Jesus' headquarters ministry, where he, had his, had his, where he sort of centered his ministry. So the apostles go down, it says in verse 16, and they got to a boat, and they went over to the sea toward Capernaum. And evidently what's happened is Jesus hasn't shown up. They're expecting him to show up, but he doesn't. So they just depart, and they head toward Capernaum. So it's about 9 o'clock at night. Okay, So that's about the time frame that we have here. Now look in the middle of verse 17. It says, and it was already dark. See that? It was already dark. It's springtime. And then it goes on and says, and Jesus had not come to them. Now, in John's Gospel, darkness is one of, the, one of his main themes. 
Remember Nicodemus? He came to Jesus by night. When it was dark. Under the gaze of darkness. And in the prologue, the chapter 1 of John's Gospel, you'll know how it says in chapter 1, verse 5, right at the beginning of the whole book, it says, uh, talking about Jesus, and in him was life. And this life was the light of men. Remember that? And the light came into the world, and the darkness, see, there is that word darkness, couldn't overtake the light. And so what we have is this theme of darkness, and so... John makes it a point to let you know that when the disciples get into the boat and head over toward Capernaum, it's dark outside. And that's a very important thing, because bad things happen in darkness. And uh, Satan is the does things secretly and in the dark. So we sort of see his hand behind the scenes here. Look at verse 18. It says this, Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. Uh, if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, it's, a very, it's in a very unusual setting. The sea itself is 600 feet below sea level. And so everything around it is higher. The hills around it are higher. And because it's in this sort of basin or this bowl, the wind just rips and storms start up you know, in a moment's notice. And so what we have here is we have this storm rising up. Notice the word arose. Do you see that? Then the sea arose in verse uh, 18. And the word, the Greek word for arose, means awakened. It was like when they got in that boat and they got out on the sea, a sleeping giant was awakened. And he was angry. And the sea gets angry, it gets agitated. And this storm just builds up. And so that's what's happening. Mark tells us that they rode and they rode and they rode. This is in Mark's Gospel. And they were getting nowhere fast. Uh, he says they're still in the middle of the sea at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, which means that they rode for about 6 hours. Now these are professional fishermen. And they're really struggling. And I imagine they're just absolutely exhausted. So verse 19 says, so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. I'm convinced that when they see this figure walking on the sea, they don't recognize who it is. Only the Gospel writer John tells us who it is. He's giving us the identity of this person walking on the sea. Uh, I imagine that they are so exhausted that they, they think they're seeing a ghost. You know? They're hallucinating. Sort of like Ebenezer Scrooge, remember? <laughs> and uh, so they are, remember the first ghost? I think it was the ghost of Christmas past comes and Ebenezer Scrooge, ah! I'm scared of that. These guys aren't afraid of a storm. They've been on the storm. They, they make their living. These apostles are fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They're used to storms. They're even used to fishing at night. But what they're not used to is seeing a specter walking on the sea. And that's what happens here. And John gets us, lets us in on the story and says, hey, by the way, it was Jesus. I just didn't know it. Now, as I was reading through that passage this week, and I had to really start early this week because I knew we were getting the grandkids. <coughs> And when they're there, you don't study too much. You have to realize that. So, uh, 
I have to get off and, you know, study by myself. Go into my car and sit in the garage. You know. <laughs> but as I was studying this week, I realized that uh, you can be in the middle of a storm in a very dangerous situation like this and be right in the center of God's will. Because if the gospel Mark is right, Jesus sent them down there to get in the boat and go across. So he's the one that ordered them there, and now we're in the middle of a storm. And just because you're in the middle of a difficult situation does not mean that you're not in the center of God's will. Sometimes you're right in the center of God's will when things go crazy, whether it's your health, whether it's finances, whether it's danger, whether you're getting robbed. Uh, you don't understand what's going on, but they're in the middle of the storm. But guess who's there with them? Jesus is there with them. And remember this. He sends, sends them over to Capernaum. He sends them, says, get in and go across the lake. If he says go across the lake, guess where they're going to end up? They're going to end up across the lake, aren't they? They're going to get through the storm. So uh, just because you're in the middle of a, a mess, don't think that you are outside of God's will. So often we get sick and we say, oh, maybe this is God punishing me. Don't think in those terms. God is good and God is for you. He's not against you. And when you get into a storm, it's usually some other reason. Not necessarily God putting it on you, but you can still be in the middle of His will. So they were scared. It doesn't mean you won't be scared in that situation, right? So look at verse 20. But because they were frightened, He said to them, it is I. Now he identifies himself. Do not be afraid. So when Christ is with us, we can somehow get through the situation. In fact, the other Gospels is where Jesus says, Peace. Be still. Remember when he does that and he stills the storm? John doesn't deal with all of that. He's going to go through this story real quickly because really what he wants to talk about is bread. <laughs> he wants to talk about food. And he needs to get... John wants to get them to the other side of the Sea of Galilee real quick so we can get back to the food discussion. So uh, that's what happens. It says, verse 21, Then they willingly, once he said it to me and they recognized it, they willingly received him into the boat. Oh, it's you. Come on in. Now, look at the word there. They received him. You see that? That's another one of John's themes. Remember in chapter 1? He came to his own. His own received him not. But to as many of, of those who did receive him, he gives eternal life. So the disciples receive him, that means welcome him into the boat. And that's what we're to do when we're in a situation. We welcome Jesus into the situation. And he stills the storm. Okay? So they receive him. Then at the end of verse 21 it says this, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Doesn't give any explanations, doesn't tell how it got there, no fanfare, you know, nothing fantastic, just makes a statement that Jesus rescues them and they reach the other side. Okay, so there is the storm story. Now, I want you to turn to a passage in the Old Testament and see if this doesn't sound familiar. In light of the story we just read, okay? So I want you to turn to Psalm 107. Psalm 107. I'm convinced that probably the apostles, maybe even John's readers, thought of this verse, this passage we're about to read, when they heard the story of the storm. 
look at Psalm 107. And when you get there, go down to about the middle of the chapter and go down to verse 23. Psalm 107, verse 23. Because this section describes Israel in the Old Testament times being in trouble. And it describes Israel being in trouble in the imagery of a storm. Okay? So look at this. So you're 107, 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord. They see His wonders in the deep. And He commands and He raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up, the waves mount up to the heavens. They go down to the depths. Their soul melts because of the trouble. They reel to and fro, stagger like a drunken man, and they are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm, so that its waves are still. Then they're glad because they're quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven, to the other side of the sea. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. This is a, this is a statement that the psalmist writes about Israel, who finds itself in trouble and pictures it as being in the storm, but then in the midst of the storm they cry out, God comes into the midst of it, and they get to their destination. That is how the Lord always rescued Israel in the past. He came to the rescue in their most dire moments. And now, what's happening is that the apostles, the twelve apostles, representing the nation of Israel, representing God's people for the new covenant, find themselves into a, in a storm, and here God comes in the midst and delivers them. So he's once again delivering his people. So it's sort of a picture of that. And I think maybe uh, a few people uh, who were reading this or heard this story would think back on Psalm 107. So that ends day number one. They reach the other shore. Okay. Now look at day number two. We're back in John chapter 6. And look at verse 22. John chapter 6 and verse 22. <clears throat> this is a very complicated little sentence. But I'll try to read it so you can understand it. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw there was no boat there except the ones which the disciples had entered, this would be the crowd that he fed the night before. They come down to the seashore and they don't see a boat, a boat that his disciples took. And Jesus had not entered in the boat with his disciples, but the disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats from Tiberias, that's on the western side of the sea, the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee, near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks, when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got in the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So now what we have is this crowd who was fed the night before starts hunting for Jesus because he'd gone to a mountaintop, remember? And uh, they lost sight of him. The disciples end up getting in a boat, going to Capernaum, 
Next morning, the crowd, the 5,000 plus, come hunting for Jesus, trying to maybe persuade him to be their king again. And they don't find him and say, where in the world is he? We knew there was a boat there. And uh, somebody said, yeah, the disciples took that boat across you know, somewhere to Capernaum. They said they were going, but Jesus wasn't with them. And so these people say, and just as they're thinking about this, a whole bunch of boats arrive on the seashore. And they hop in, and they start following where Jesus went. So that's day number two. That's the situation. They get to the other shore. You see in verse 24, they came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And now this, and they find him, and this leads to three questions. Okay? Question number one, found in verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? We never saw you get in a boat and come here. How did you get over here? That's the crowd asking him that. They want to know, when did you get here? How did you get across the sea? We heard that your disciples took a boat. You weren't in it. How did you get across? When did you get here? That's the question. Question number one. Get ready for the answer number one. Verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, or truly, truly, of a certainty I say to you, you're not seeking me because you saw the signs, meaning signs of healing and all those things, but you're seeking me because of what? You ate the bread of the loaves, and you were filled. Now what kind of answer is that? What's the question? Jesus, when did you get here? He doesn't say when he gets here. What does he do? He's saying, well, why did you come here? See, well, that's what he's saying. And why did they come here? What does he say? Because yesterday you got your gut filled with bread and fish. So he's sort of throwing it back on them. So he's saying, well, the real question is not when I got here. The real question is why did you come here seeking me? And the answer is, number one, if you look in verse 26, a negative answer, not because you saw the signs, which would be healing signs, but the positive answer is because you ate the loaves and you were filled the night before. And the implication is, guess what? You want more right now. You want me to feed you again. You want me to feed you another time. You want me to feed you another time. You're doing it out of your absolute own self-interest. So he issues a challenge in verse 26. He says, do not labor or strive for the food which perishes. But for the food, strive for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Now that's a verse filled with a lot of material, isn't it? So, first of all, look what he says in verse 27. Don't strive or labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. He divides food into two categories. The temporal category, regular food, which is here today and gone tomorrow. We ate food last night, and because we had these little kids with us, we got a couple pizzas. (laughs) Guess what? Here today, gone tomorrow. It satisfies for one day only. And then in the other category, he talks about an eternal kind of food that doesn't satisfy for one day and run out, but satisfies forever. So that's the first thing. Notice the wording there. 
in verse 27. Food which perishes, food which produces everlasting life. Did you ever hear those words, perishes and everlasting life before? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about people who try to find, just meet their own needs, and they're going to end up perishing along with the food that, they, that satisfies them for a short time. And then he's talking about food that produces eternal life. So when he uses food that, lack, that produces eternal life, he's speaking metaphorically. That's a figure of speech. A figure of speech that represents something else. If Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, he's not literally the bread of life, is he? No. That word, bread of life, represents something else, right? So we always have to find out what it represents. So, that's the first thing you notice in verse 27. Also, notice what he says. Which the Son of Man will give to you, or gives to you. You see that? The Son of Man. That's the second time in John's Gospel that he uses that title and applies it to himself. It comes from the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, where the Son of Man goes before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives him a kingdom and a dominion over the entire world. And Jesus applies that to himself. He said, I am the Son of Man that was prophesied in the book of Daniel. And then finally look in verse 27. He gives it because, look at the end of verse 27, because the Father, God the Father, has set His seal on Him. God the Father has put His seal on Jesus. When did He put His seal on Jesus? At His baptism. When the Holy Spirit came down and sealed Him in a special way as the anointed Son of Man, and God said, This is my beloved Son. This, this one and only, in whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus is God's appointed representative on earth who can give eternal life because God has put his seal on him. Okay. Now, that leads to question number two. So that's how he answered question number one. Now look at question number two in verse 28. Then they said to him, well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? In other words, what does God require of us that we can have this eternal life? Since you brought the eternal life up, what do we have to do to have this kind of bread that never runs out? Look at Jesus' answer in verse 29. He answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Here's what God requires for you to have the eternal life. Believe in Him who He sent. Now who did God send? Jesus Christ. So this word believe means to commit yourself, to entrust yourself to Him, to cast your lot with Him, to be loyal to Him. So he answers the question directly. You need to believe. Okay? You need to be loyal. Okay? This leads to question number three. Look at verse 30. Therefore they said to him, Well, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And they said, Well, you know, you're claiming to be the Son of Man. You say we should believe you. On what basis? You're going to give us any proof? How about doing something? How about performing a miracle that will validate your claim that you're the Son of Man? Uh, what do you think they want him to do? It's very interesting. Look at verse 31. 
Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And they're describing Moses providing bread to the Israelites for 40 years. <coughs> hint, hint. You know, one day giving us bread for one meal, <laughs> that's okay, but guess what? If you want us to really follow you, guess what you're going to have to come up with? How about a 40-year supply? We're going to have a 40-year plan, you know. We've heard of the Obama plan. Here's the, here's the Jewish plan. 40 years of bread, you know. So that's what they want. And uh, that's the kind of miracle or the sign that they're looking for before they will entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. Okay? So now Jesus has to come back. He pushes back when they say that. Look what he says in verse 32. And by the way, if you look at 31, they even quoted the scripture as it was written. That's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> they quoted the scripture. This is what we want you to do. This is what the scripture says. Peace for 40 years. Uh, then Jesus pushes back, and look what he says in verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. You got it wrong. What Moses that gave you that? And he says it truly, truly. He wants to make sure they get this point. Of a certainty, you got it wrong. It wasn't Moses who gave you that bread. Moses was just a man on earth. He didn't give you anything. Where did the bread come from? Does it say? It says in verse what is what verse are we in? Thirty-two. Yeah, Moses didn't give you the bread that comes from what? Heaven, you see that? From heaven. Moses was a man on earth. He couldn't reach up to heaven. I can't only can't even reach up to this ceiling. How can Moses get some bread down from heaven? You got it wrong. Moses didn't give you that bread. Notice in the past. See that? In the past. Verse 32. Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not in the past give you the bread from heaven. Who gave it? But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now notice that's present tense. You see that? In the past, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. It was God who provided you the past. And in the present, verse 32, my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So we have two kinds of bread, don't we? We got regular bread that they got in the past for 40 years. And they thought Moses gave it to them. He says, well, Moses didn't give that to you. God who provided that. And now... God provides you bread, but what kind of bread is it, what is it called? True bread. It's a different kind of bread. He says, that comes from my Father. Notice how he personalizes that and calls God his Father. Now, so the bread that Jesus gave the day before, and the bread he promises to give them now that will lead to eternal life, that they will re receive to have eternal life, he doesn't even give that himself. Who gives it? My father provides it. The father provided regular bread through Moses in the past. The father provides supernatural bread in the present through Jesus, his earthly representative. Remember Jesus said, I can do nothing of myself. If you were here three weeks ago, remember how he said, I can do nothing of myself. I only do what I see my father do. Remember when he said that? I can do nothing of myself. I can only do what I hear my I can only say what I hear my father say. 
I can do nothing of myself. Remember what he said? Look, I can do what of myself? Nothing of myself. I can do nothing of myself. You want a sign? I can do nothing of myself. But there's someone who can do something. The Father can do something. And he provides true bread, and he does it through the Son. But it doesn't originate with the Son. It originates with the Father. So that's the argument that we have presented here. Okay? The bread originates from heaven. Its destination is earth. Right? So that's important. Now look at verse 33. For, or because, the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now he's going to describe what the bread is. And the bread isn't a commodity, the bread is a person. And the bread that comes down from heaven is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom God sends from heaven to earth. He's the bread of life. If you eat on that bread, you'll have eternal life. So the bread is uh, points to the person of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to you? And then it goes on to say, and he gives life to the Jews. Is that what it says in verse 33? Who's he give it to? He gives it to the world. Jesus didn't come for the Jews only to give them eternal life. He comes to give life to the world. And we are in on that. Those of us who are Gentiles are in on that. So bread, the true bread, is a metaphor that speaks of Jesus Christ who was sent from God down to earth to provide eternal life. Now, we have their request. Just see if this doesn't sound familiar. Verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Give us this bread always. Who does that sound like? Yeah, woman at the well. Remember he said, the water that I give you is like a stream that will flow to everlasting life. And what does she say? I'll take it. I don't ever want to come to this well and drink it. If you can give me water that lasts forever, and she's still thinking on what? Physical term, a literal, literal plane. And now Jesus talks about this bread, and that he's the bread, and it produces eternal life, and they say what? Give us this bread. Do they really want it? Do they want to commit their lives to Christ? Look what it says. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. So now, because they're misunderstanding, Jesus has to clarify. So look how he clarifies the situation. Look in verse 35. He said to them, hey, you got it wrong. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never, and it's really emphasized here, shall never, no, never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never, no, Never thirst. Now look what he says there. See if you can read that and get something out of it here. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. See that? Now look at the word come. He who comes to me, and then he who what? Believes in me. They mean the same thing. To come to Jesus means to believe in Jesus. It means to entrust yourself to Jesus. If you come to Jesus, if you come anywhere, guess what you have to do? You have to leave where you are, and you have to go to where you're not. Right? You have to, so to come to Jesus, and let's say Debbie's Jesus, and if I'm going to come to Jesus, guess what I have to do? I have to move where I am right now, and I have to come. See? 
And so that's what he's asking them to do. Right now, they're trusting themselves for their salvation. They have to make a move. They have to make an about faith. They have to trust Jesus, see? And so come and believe means the same thing. And then in verse 35, notice he combines the hunger and the thirst. He who comes to me will never hunger. He's talking about eternal life, by the way. He who believes in me will never thirst. And he takes chapter 4, the woman at the well and the water and thirst image. And here, chapter 6, the bread image. And he combines them. And he says, you know, the never thirst is like never being hungry again. And it's describing salvation. So then he says this in verse 36. And this is where I'm going to stop. Look what he says. But I say to you. That's the requirement. You need to come. You need to believe. But I say to you. That you have seen me. And what? You don't believe. And you never believe. And you'll never believe. Because you have hard hearts. Because you don't want to change. You don't want to come to me. You don't want to believe. You want to do it your way. You see? You're satisfied with the temporal food that lasts today and gone tomorrow. You don't want something that will give you eternal life. You want to do it all in your terms. And so he basically condemns them with that one sentence, and you will not come. See, in verse 35. Now he will say, we'll see this next week in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will what? What's it say in verse 37? All that the Father gives me what? Will come. <laughs> Now we get into the whole sovereignty of God issue, and we'll be dealing with that next week. So, next week we're going to conclude the chapter, and the bread portion of the chapter, and the Lord's Supper portion of the chapter. I want to say something. We think of the Lord's Supper as a ritual. We think of baptism as a ritual. And I'm convinced that the most evangelicals, even Baptists, really don't put the emphasis on these rituals as we should. When we think of something that's a ritual, we sort of think, well, that's just a ritual. But rituals are important. In fact, I would go as far as to say, rituals are reality. Rituals are reality. If you got married, you went through a wedding ceremony. That was a ritual. And guess what you said? For better or for worse, look at this commitment you're going to make. This is a ritual. For better or for worse, what else? Richer for poor. <laughs> Richer for health and sickness. Well, look, the death to us part, I do. Now, guess what? Had you not gone through that ritual, you wouldn't have been married. It wasn't just a ritual. The ritual was a reality. You had to go through the ritual, whether it was in front of a judge, whether in front of a preacher. You had to go through the ritual in order for you to pass from one stage to another. That's the ritual. But the ritual is also a reality, isn't it? In the New Testament, yes, you cannot find anybody since the day of Pentecost who's not baptized. We saw baptism just a ritual. Well, yeah, but guess what? That was the way that demonstrated that you went from death unto life by being baptized. And we think of the Lord's Supper as just a ritual. But that is a continual commitment of our faith to Jesus Christ and a statement that He is sustaining us and feeding us and giving us eternal life 
every second of our life. And so the ritual, in a sense, is a reality. It changes your status. In the early church, when they put you out of the church in church discipline, what they were doing is they were removing you from the Lord's Supper. Because you had a change of status. You were now outside the church. You didn't get to eat the Lord's Supper. Only God's people were sustained by the Lord's Supper. You see, so rituals are more than just symbols. They are really, really a reality where your status has changed. And we're going to see that next week when Jesus talks about what it means to eat his body and to drink his blood. That's what we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage which explains a lot. And it shows us how we misinterpret words. We can misinterpret communication one to another. We think that we're hearing what's being said, but we're missing its meaning. And we don't communicate effectively. As a result, we, we can read the scriptures and think we understand what it means and totally miss its meaning. Just as these people heard Jesus, still we're not getting it. And the issue was their heart. If their heart was right, they would have understood. They would have had a desire to know and they would have continued to probe until they understood. Oh Lord, help us as we read this scripture here to seek its meaning, to apply it to our lives. Help us to realize that a ritual is more than just symbolic. It means reality. Thank you Lord for this lesson in Christ's name. Amen. Christmas.